We're in a series going through the Gospel of Matthew. And if you are new here or maybe you're new to the Bible, let me zoom out and give you a big overview, catch you up to speed about what's going on. Matthew is one of the four biblical accounts in your New Testament uh, that records the life of Jesus. They're like four biographies of Jesus' life. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And as a church, we're studying Matthew. And uh, each of these four Gospels are not contradictory, but they're complementary, uh, meaning if they're meant to be read together. And uh, where one gospel maybe focuses on a certain aspect of Jesus's life and ministry, another gospel uh, fills in and gives you a more uh, robust view, kind of fulfilling and painting the picture uh, of Jesus, so to speak. And Matthew was written largely to a Jewish audience, right? That's why as we read Matthew, as we've been studying it as a church, uh, you'll see that, man, Jesus fulfills a lot of Old Testament scripture because Jews really wanted to know how this Jesus, this revolutionary claiming to be God, fulfilled their Old Testament scriptures. Uh, the Gospel of Mark is really significant. It's, it's a short one, so if you're not a big reader, start in Mark, okay? Um, Mark's Gospel is written to uh, Gentiles, non-Jews, uh, but with uh, Roman emphasis. It was, it was written and directed toward uh, Romans, and it's known as the Action Gospel, one of Mark's favorite words is immediately, okay? Because these Roman centurion, these soldiers want to know how Jesus is a warrior and they want to know how, how Jesus is demanding allegiance. And so he emphasizes on the miracles and actions of Jesus. Uh, the Gospel of Luke was written by a physician. He's a doctor and he was a scholar in his own right. Really sharp dude. Uh, consequently, Luke, Luke's a long gospel, uh, it's pretty lengthy, a lot of content in Luke. But Luke focuses on uh, the kingdom of God for the oppressed and for the marginalized and focuses on uh, Jesus' teachings on finances more than any other gospel. It's a very detailed account. Uh, and then the gospel of John is the fourth biography in our Bibles of Jesus' life. And it's really in a category in and of itself. I don't know if you've heard this before, or maybe you might even think this today, and that's okay, we're glad you're here, but... Um, Ever heard someone, someone wonder, like, did Jesus actually claim to be God? Like, I, I don't know if Jesus ever claimed to be God. Read the Gospel of John and let me know what you think about that, okay? Uh, man, John's whole emphasis is to prove that Jesus is the divine human son of God. So why am I sharing this with you? One, it's really fun. This is really fun. This is, this is nerdy stuff. This is good stuff. We want to know what's in our Bibles. We want to equip you to be able to read your Bible well, right? Um, but also, as we read Matthew, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9 today. And uh, Mark's gospel account actually shares and tells this same narrative. And so where Matthew focuses on certain aspects of this account, Mark fills in the gaps and gives us a more complete picture. So I want to encourage you as we continue working through Matthew as a church, I want to encourage you to man, read the four gospels. Uh, see what they have to say about these similar accounts in Jesus' life and ministry compared with Matthew uh, as well. Like I said, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9 beginning in verse 18. So if you would turn there with me, it'll be on the screen behind me as well. I want you to follow along as I read out loud. It says this, while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died. Just come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And as they were going, behold, a woman who had suffered with the discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. 
Verse 22, Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. Instantly, the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went throughout all the district. Let me give you an illustration, um, maybe help uh, put some handles on, on what's going on in this passage, illustration from history. Um, in 1503, uh, famous painter named Leonardo da Vinci was working on what is perhaps the best known work of art in modern history. Uh, this is the Mona Lisa. And the Mona Lisa today uh, is housed at the Louvre Museum in France. But before landing there, it had quite the turbulent history. Uh, for example, in 1911, the painting was stolen, like stolen from the museum. And uh, Pablo Picasso, you might have heard of him, was actually one of the suspects as a thief. Uh, fast forward a few years to World War II. Da Vinci's Mona Lisa was singled out as the most endangered piece of art in France at the time. And so naturally, it was evacuated to France's countryside for a number of years until the war subsided. After the war, fast forward a few more decades, the Mona Lisa today is housed in a bulletproof glass case. This was to protect it against acts of vandalism. Uh, one of them, this is absolutely unbelievable, uh, happened in 2009 where a museum goer observing the beautiful work of art, the Mona Lisa, I guess got frustrated or whatever and threw his coffee mug at the painting. It's like, like what is with you people? Why? Why do you do that? This, this, this painting is valued at $850 million. And so people throughout history have been trying to degrade it, been trying to steal it, been trying to devalue it. And so we have to ask, why have people gone to great lengths uh, to protect this, this single painting? And, and I think we know the answer. It's because it was painted by a master in his craft, Leonardo da Vinci. We also know that, and there's, there's not a painting like it in the world. This is highly valuable. And so naturally, generation after generation for the last 500 years have gone to great lengths, spent tremendous amounts of money on security staff and protective measures to protect this one piece of painting from anything that could devalue, degrade, or diminish its value. And I share this with you because what is true for this piece of art physically uh, also speaks to what is true for human beings spiritually. Um, on page one of your Bible, Genesis chapter one, we learn that human beings, you and me, are created in the image of God. Male and female, God created all people. Humans were created with a two-part composition, body, that's physical, that's material, and soul, that's the immaterial, the spiritual component of humanity. Both are in the image of God. And all people know this. Okay, no matter how much we suppress it, all people know this. That's why, uh, whether theistic or atheistic, people don't like seeing other people get physically harmed and abused. Why? Because we're, we're made in the image of God and humans are, are valuable. And what is, what is true physically for humans is also true, it's true spiritually for humans as well. 
the Bible speaks of this uh, supernatural issue, this cosmic issue in the universe, and it's called sin. And this sin serves to tarnish, degrade, diminish, and devalue the people of God made in his image. Right, the scripture and Jesus talk about sin in two primary ways. Uh, first is that sin is breaking God's law. Right, sin is, is failing to live up to God's righteous demands. And our response is repentance. We need to repent for breaking God's law. But the Bible also talks about sin in a sense that it defiles God's good creation. Sin is not only something we need to repent of, but it's also something we need to be cleansed from. This is why in Isaiah chapter 1, right, God says, Come now, Israel, come now, God's people, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them white as snow. Sin devalues, degrades, and diminishes the value of people made in God's image. And I share this with you because in Matthew 9, the passage we just read, uh, we see two women, Jesus encountering two women who would have been considered unclean. They would have been considered devalued, degraded, and their worth diminished because of the stain of, of sin and ritual impurity. And here's what I need you to know. The work of Christ cleanses us from the stain of sin. We'll see as Jesus ministers to these two women that his work, his ministry, brings cleansing where sin has brought defilement. It cleanses us from the stain of sin. In verses 18 and 19, we see that Jesus is present in our pain. Verse 18, while Jesus was saying these things to them, uh, behold, a ruler, a ruler came in and he knelt before him. Mark's gospel, recording this account as well, tells us a little bit more about this ruler. This ruler's name was Jairus, and he was the chief of the synagogue in Capernaum, Jesus' home base for his ministry. Now this Jairus, being chief of the Jews, risked his reputation going and kneeling before Jesus. Right, you understand that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the Jews of the day, the, the chief priests, the chief leaders of the synagogue, they were meant plotting to get Jesus killed because he was a revolutionary threatening the religious system of the day. But Jairus, knowing all of this, in the midst of his friends, goes and says, I, I need something from this Jesus. And so he kneels before him. If there's one thing rulers don't do, it's kneel. If there's one thing kings don't do, it's, it's, it's kneel. Right? People kneel to rulers. Rulers don't kneel before anyone. Yet this man kneels before Jesus. How many of you know that uh, kneeling, even today, is an act of tremendous reverence, honor? And I would say, man, it's an act of worship. It's an act of worship. And so this ruler shows honor by kneeling before another man, Jesus. And I think, it's, I think it's significant because at the end of the day, uh, we know that in Philippians 2, it says that every knee will bow and every mouth will confess that Jesus is Lord. So really, here's the big picture. It's not a matter of whether people will kneel before Jesus. It's just a matter of when you will do it. 
right? It's either you will kneel now and submit to him as Lord and Savior of your life, or you will do it later when Jesus comes and returns in all glory as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And Jairus, he, he, he recognized this and knelt before him in this life. And we know why he knelt. He says, Jesus, my, my daughter has just died. Would you come and lay your hand on her? If you do, she will live. How do you know that this ruler was brought low by pain and suffering? We know from Mark's gospel that this girl was 12 years old when she died. Man, pain is really humanity's equalizer. It doesn't matter how much money you make. doesn't matter where you've been, how privileged you are. doesn't matter what other people think of you. How many of you know that when pain strikes your family, that brings you low? C.S. Lewis said it this way, God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. Pain is something that really just can't be ignored. You can ignore God in times of great pleasure. You can even suppress the truth of God in your conscience and in your mind, but pain is something that people really just can't ignore. And it's no different for this chief ruler of the synagogue. His daughter, 12 years old, little girl, died. And he's brought low before the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Jesus. And Jesus has mercy on him. Verse 19 says, Jesus obliged, he rose, rose from the meal with his disciples and, and followed him. Let me ask you this. Where do you go when pain brings you low? Where do you go in times of suffering and anguish? Here's what we know. Jairus went to Jesus, and this was a good move. Because Jesus is not just a God who is removed from our suffering, but Jesus is a God who is acquainted with the grief and suffering of his people. Jesus entered into human history as God took on flesh, dwelt among his people, entered into our mess, entered into our brokenness and our suffering, and ultimately suffered a sinner's death, though he knew no sin, so that we could be reconciled to the Father. Our God knows our pain. His name is Jesus. He's the wonderful counselor in times of pain and suffering. And Jairus recognized this, and I, I pray that you would recognize this. When you come to Jesus at, at rock bottom, you will find that the rock, Jesus Christ, is rock solid. We see that Jesus isn't only present in pain, but as he's on the journey to this leader's house, he, he's also deserving of faith. Verses 20 through 22 says this, behold, as, as Jesus was going to Jairus' house, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. Why? Well, because she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I'll be made well. Let me, let me pause there. Jesus encounters a woman who is suffering tremendously in every sphere of life. Okay, she would have been suffering physically, she had a hemorrhage for 12 years, bleeding off and on intermittently. 
right? She would have been sick. She would have been tired. She would have been void of energy, in pain. We know also that this woman would have been considered unclean religiously. Okay, if you look at the Old Testament law, uh, Leviticus chapter 15, it's the chapter on bodily fluids. Really riveting read, by the way. But it's the chapter on bodily fluids. And, and Leviticus 15 renders bodily fluids unclean. And here's why. One, really practically, uh, it's unsanitary. Right? It's unsanitary. Um, it, it, God's people in, in Israel were, man, hundreds if not thousands of years ahead of the modern or the ancient science of their, of their day. Man, God's people were distinctly clean. And so it was unsanitary to be around bodily fluids. But also, there's a theological point to this as well. Right? Theologically, we know in, in, in Leviticus that blood is sacred because it represents the life of humanity. Blood represents life. And so it's to be treated not flippantly, but with great reverence. It represents the life of, of God's people. So she was unclean religiously. She was also an outcast socially. Right, just imagine this with me. Uh, this woman who had been wandering Capernaum for 12 years, and she would have looked disfigured, she wouldn't have been able to hold a job. She's not given a name in this narrative, neither in Mark's. No husband is mentioned. Probably couldn't have children. She was an outcast socially. Yet in verse 22, and we read that after touching Jesus' garment, Jesus turned seeing her and said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. I need you to catch that. Your faith has made you well. Let me talk for a moment on the nature of biblical faith, the nature of, of true faith. Uh, true faith, this is a massive statement. Uh, true faith includes three components. Knowledge, conviction, and trust. Okay, let me unpack that. Uh, knowledge. We need to know in whom we are trusting. We need to know the character of what we're trusting, or we need to know. I would say the object of your faith is just as important as the faith itself. I'll give you an example. Uh, if you were, say, drowning at sea, and someone throws you a rock and says, here, hang on to this rock, right? It, it doesn't matter how much faith you have that that rock will save you. Your faith would have been tremendously misplaced. You will drown, right? The object of your faith is just as important as the faith itself, that's why faith begins with knowledge. We need to know. Faith then moves into conviction. It's not enough just to know in whom we trust. We have to believe in our hearts. We have to be convinced thoroughly that Jesus is worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our faith. What we read in James, it's a New Testament book, we read that Satan and demons believe that God is one. They have right theology about God, but it's only knowledge. Even the demons believe that God is one, and they shudder, James says. It's not a conviction of theirs. True faith is not just possessed in our mind. True faith is in our heart, and it transforms us. That's conviction. 
And lastly, faith includes trust. You'll often hear this referred to as taking a step of faith. James says faith without works is dead. And so trust is when we walk in relationship with Jesus and we take steps of faith with him. Did this woman possess these three things? Absolutely. And she doubtlessly would have known who Jesus was. Right, Capernaum was his home base for his three-year ministry in, in Galilee. Did she have conviction? Totally. This conviction led her to leave her home, risk public shame and embarrassment, navigate a crowd. And what was that step of faith? What was that trust? If I would just touch the hem of his garment, I know I'll be made well. What tremendous faith this woman had. Not only that, but true faith trusts in God before, within, and regardless of circumstance. True faith trusts in God before, within, and regardless of circumstance. This is because we have trust in the timeless, unchanging character of God. This is why the author of Hebrews can say, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We don't trust in a shifting emotional God. We trust in a sure, firm foundation, the unchanging, timeless character of God, not bound to time, not bound to circumstances. We trust God before, within, and regardless of circumstance because he is sovereign over circumstance. God is the author, founder, and finisher, completer of our faith. So let me ask you, can you trust God? Can you trust in the person and work of Jesus regardless of the circumstance you face today? Can you trust in the face of that diagnosis? His character doesn't change based on the news you received this week. That doesn't change God's character. He is confident and sure. I found this. Uh, true faith is not demanding God to do our will. It's trusting God when he does his will. True faith is not demanding God to do what we think he should do. True faith is trusting him when he accomplishes good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is why we can trust God in the face of the diagnosis, in the face of the marital crisis, in the face of the financial difficulty, in the face of an election year. Right? This is why we can trust God because he's always working out his will. All things, Romans remind us, work for the good of those who love him. This is the work of God. This is why Christ is deserving of our faith. This woman knew this. We see that Jesus isn't just present in pain, deserving of faith, but he's also our great high priest. That's what the last few verses focus on. I'll read them again. After healing this woman, Jesus came to Jairus' house, saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion. He said, go away. The girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. I'll pause there. These two verses are focusing on preparation for a funeral. This girl was dead. This 12-year-old little girl, dead. 
There's a big crowd gathered for the funeral. There were flute players. Uh, it was common in the biblical era, uh, the time in which Jesus lived, uh, to hire professional mourners. Right, let me just say this. If you think your job is terrible going in Monday morning, you're not being hired to weep on behalf of other people every day. It's exhausting. That's what they would do. And Jesus says, hold on, this girl is not dead but sleeping. How many of you know that only Jesus can make such a claim? And we know she was dead because Jairus paid real cash out of his pocket to hire and prepare for the funeral. And he traveled some distance to find Jesus, risk his reputation because her, his, his daughter was, was dead and knew that Jesus could could heal her and bring her back to life. What Jesus is saying when he says this girl is not dead but sleeping, he's speaking to the temporary nature of her death and he's speaking to his authority over death. And Jesus is is king over death. He conquered death. He is the resurrection and the life. In verse 25, that. This is astounding. I need you to catch this. It says, but when the crowd had been put outside, Jesus says, get away. He went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose. Okay, the Old Testament law renders dead bodies, corpses unclean. Again, for theological and sanitary reasons. In fact, in Leviticus 21, priests were forbidden to even go near dead bodies, even if it's the priest's mother or father. Said, you are not to defile yourself with the dead. You are to be clean and set apart. And Jesus, knowing all of this, he was a good Jew. He studied his Bible. He went in and took this dead girl by the hand and the girl arose. This is significant because in the Old Testament law, the unclean girl would have made Jesus unclean, would have defiled him. But Jesus as king of the new covenant, Jesus as God made flesh grabs this girl by the hand and he does not become defiled but instead he cleanses her from her defilement. What does this mean for us? This means that we serve a God who is not stained by our defilement We serve a God who can, with one touch, cleanse us from our sin. The work of Christ cleanses us from the stain of sin. Jesus is the great high priest who is not stained by our defilement, but makes clean what has defiled us. So Matthew 9, verses 18 through 26, we have two women, two touches, 
and we have two miracles. Jesus remains pure. Jesus remains clean. And the women who were defiled, physically, defiled, according to the law, were also made clean by the touch of Jesus, the great high priest. And you need to know that just as these two women were physically and ritually unclean according to the law, so too are we, you and me, every person in this room, every person in the history of the world, so too are we defiled spiritually by the stain of our sin. You might say, no, I've, I've been pretty good this week. I'm not that defiled this week. Ephesians 2 The Apostle Paul says, we are dead in our sin and are by nature children of wrath. This is our spiritually genetic condition before Christ. We are defiled and we are condemned as lawbreakers before God. We need Christ to cleanse us from the defilement of our sin. Remember, the Bible doesn't just talk about sin as breaking God's law. The Bible also talks about sin as defiling people made in the image of God. As I've been praying for you this week, I believe there are some of you here where you know in your mind that you're, you're forgiven. You understand the work of Christ on your behalf. But because of something you've done or something that's been done to you, you still just feel defiled. You feel shame. You feel guilt. The stain of your sin is still, still remains. And here's what I ask of you. Come to Christ because he purchased your forgiveness, but also cleanses you from all unrighteousness. He cleanses you from the stain of sin. He cleanses you from that terrible thing that happened to you. He cleanses you from the terrible past you've been a part of. This is why in 1 John 1, 9, it says if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isaiah chapter 1 says, Though your sins are like scarlet, deep red, God makes them white as snow. Or in the book of Revelation, the last book of your Bible, crazy stuff going on there. What's going on is we get a peek behind the curtain into the unseen realm of the kingdom of God. We get, we get a glimpse into what the future holds for the children of God. And here's what we know in Revelation 19. All the people who are with God, they're called the army of heaven. They're submitted to Christ as their king and they are Jesus' army. And we're told in Revelation 19 that the army of Christ is clothed in robes of fine, white, pure linen. Why? Because when we are with King Jesus, when we are with the one who purchased our forgiveness and made us clean, we don't wear our sin anymore. And we, we aren't defined by the stain of our sin, the stain of our shame and guilt and our brokenness. We're clothed in white and we're giving a, given a new identity. And the, the bloody cross of Calvary washes us white as snow. 
Jesus did it for these two women. He cleansed them from their defilement. And if you placed your trust in the finished work of Jesus, he's faithful and just to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Would you pray with me?